The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible today, we are in a book called Revelation. Maybe you've heard of it before. And we are in the last book of the Bible. And we're in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. This officially marks, basically getting through verse 8 today, one-third of the book. One-third of the book. We are making good progress, and we are getting through as quickly as we feel we can. We've told you as you turn there that this is not, uh, we're not going to chase every detail everywhere. Uh, We're not going to solve every question that you have. Our purpose here is to remind you what the refined Kansas City kids walking around here during the week have said over and over. They've tried to quiz me. Pastor Darren, what is Revelation all about? You know what I tell them? God wins. And then they walk through my door and say, God wins. And it's, it's fun. So just thank the Lord for little minds that remember big things, right? That God teaches them. And so if you don't agree with what I say to you today about how I take this part of Revelation, I still love you. I'm going to give you a hug, a high five, a fist bump, whatever. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But what matters is, is that we see the big picture. God wins. Or to use the, uh, 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 the shoe company thing that they stole from the Greek, that little swish thing, you know what I'm talking about? The Nike is the, is the Greek word for victory. You could say it that way. God wins. Nike is victory. This is what it's all about. So if you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with us as we look at God wins, today's title being the ceiling, the ceiling, not like the ceiling, the ceiling with an S, like you seal your windows to winterize them with caulk. Does that make sense? I think you get the picture now. This is a tough chapter. I will tell you before we read this, this is probably one of the most misunderstood and debated chapters in all of Scripture. I don't know why, but it is. But perhaps we can solve it today to God's glory. Chapter 7, on the heels of chapter 6, verse 17, the wrath of God last week we looked at. The great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? That sixth seal. We are now at a timeout between the sixth seal of, of judgment and the seventh. And we're almost looking back to what is happening before that happens. So here it is in chapter 7, excuse me, down to verse 8. Hear God's word this morning. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea. Or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard, verse 4, the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, from Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All of these tribes, and there's that key word you probably have at the end of verse 8, were what? 
or sealed. They were sealed. And we will talk about what that means today. Friends, I just want to tell you that often as Christians, we major on minors and we make mountains out of moleholes. And this is one of those passages that has really become such a sticking point for so many people that it has literally divided churches and separated brothers and sisters in Christ. May it never be so here at Tower View Baptist Church. Whether you agree with what I'm going to tell you or you don't, I, I pray that there's room for both of us in the kingdom of God because this is all God's word. And that's where we're going to stand today. So may God bless our hearing, reading, and doing of it as we pray. Will you join me again as we bow our heads together? Father, thank you so much for the, the, the simple fact that because you are all that Nelson read from Ephesians 1, you sent your son, in you we've been predestined, in you we find our inheritance, our fulfillment, our, uh, the deposit, the sealing, the guarantee. Because of those things, Lord, we can be unified in the things that matter most. Father, no matter how we take this chapter that has become so divisive over the years, we pray that we as a church, both here at Tower View and universally across all Christians everywhere, would see that you dying for our sins, resurrected, coming again, Lord, are the very things we seal our unity on. Father, if we agree to disagree on this passage, okay. But may Satan, and may the devil, may his minions, those, those pesky demons that we studied a little bit in Mark today, not be among us trying to disunify us from the fact that we are one in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and God of all. And Father, we are so grateful. So Lord, we pray these things to your glory. May we know more of you. May we share more of you. And may we praise more of you today from what we learn here. We ask all this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, it's hard to believe because we have a lot of these that pass through, but on October 2nd, 2016, just shy of seven years ago, Hurricane Matthew slammed into the little island of Haiti. And I believe some in our congregation have been to Haiti before or have had missions there before that you've supported. And this, this particular uh, hurricane was very devastating, 100-mile-an-hour winds. And just for context, yesterday, what ripped through our area, if you were part of those storms, were about 40 to 50 if you can double that, the rainfall came so quickly, entire communities were swept off the map, literally, as they often are when Haiti is hit by a terrible storm. Yet surprisingly, for some in this storm, there was a refuge. In fact, the residents of a town, I believe I'm saying this correctly, Lacadoni, that's French, that's Darren's bad English with French, had the presence of mind to scale a mountainside nearby their town. And they found a small cave where they rode out the storm. In fact, there were over 550 people, men, women, children, who found their way up this mountain. And for four days and four nights, while this storm was raging crazy down below, were safe, protected, sheltered, fed, watered, all the like. But they assumed at the very bottom there were no survivors. In fact, there were many survivors, but they themselves were, for the most part, unscathed and untouched. Now, I was thinking about Revelation 7. I remember the story that I often save newspaper articles from like this one. And it reminds me of an image that you're going to see in Revelation 7. Because when we ended last week, if you were here or you listened, you saw the end of the world coming to bear. And it was terrible. And terrible things were happening all around the place. And you said, just as the end of chapter, seven, uh, chapter 6 says, verse 17, who can stand? Who can stand in the midst of all this stuff? Because what is coming on the earth is so terrible. No one can stand before the wrath 
of our God. And yet, like those people in that cave who were saved from the storm itself, so too are those who are in God are sealed and safe from all that may come on this earth. It doesn't mean you won't have hard times. It doesn't mean you won't die a martyr's death. But for all eternity, you will be safe from all the things that are coming to be. I love how God gives us time outs in the book of Revelation, aren't you? Before all the seals happened, you had verses, chapters 4 and 5. But the, and then these terrible things happened, the four horsemen, and all these crazy things went down. But God gives us a time out in Revelation 7 to see what it's like for those who really know Christ. But friends, I want to remind you that there is a storm of wrath coming. We live in a day where we have air-conditioned God's character and hell to make it so comfortable that most people didn't even know there was a hell that existed. But today there is a hell, just as there is a heaven. There's a Savior, just as there is a Satan. But I want to tell you that our refuge, like that cave for those, dwe- uh, those people in Haiti, his name is Jesus Christ, and he is risen from the dead. And the joy we have in Christ is that we have found a refuge. And what chapter 7 is going to tell you is that if you're in this Christ, no matter what goes on over here, you are safe and secure with him over there. And that's what it's trying to communicate. So who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able? Who are these people? And and where does symbolism and literalism come into this passage? And how does this relate to me? Well, the big idea is simply that today, the summation of the sermon, is that God seals his people to shelter them from the coming judgment so they can serve him forever. Ephesians 2.10 says that you were predestined to do good works of which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. See, God makes us believers and God keeps us believers. And your salvation is secure because he guards it. And when Jesus resurrected that time on that third day, he secured whatever was necessary for you to be safe and secure in Jesus Christ. Since Christians are hidden with Christ in God, to be a Christian is to be secure as Christ is to the Father. If that doesn't blow your mind, I'm not sure what else will. You've not been left to secure your own future because you never would. You'd be like that man who built his house on the sand, and when the winds and the rain came on September 23rd in Kansas City, Missouri, what happened to it? But you're like the man who's built his house on the rock if you're in Christ. The winds and the waves came, and it stood strong, not because of anything he did, but all because of what the builder, that being God, did. So before we get to chapter 7, can we do a little bit of a review? Because I think you need it, I need it, and we need to put the context, if it's been a few weeks for you, in this whole thing. We know the key theme of Revelation is God wins. We know that it's addressed to seven real churches, chapters 2 and chapters 3. We know that those churches were suffering. Some were going uh, through evangelism problems. Some were going through theological compromises. Some were uh, settling with how they tolerated people and sin and things. And others were just simply just being faithful to God. And then we got to chapters 4 and 5. And we saw that there was a throne. And we saw that as we saw God on the throne, it really put everything else into perspective. But in those chapters, we realize the most relevant thing in your life is to get to know God. It's to know him and his son, Jesus Christ, to see him as your ultimate satisfaction. And then in chapter 5, we were specifically introduced to the lamb. And if you want to be victorious, you must know God and you must know his Christ. And the lamb is the one who is worthy to open the scroll thing that he had that had seven like wrapped seals around it. 
And we told you those seals were not just random events that happened, but throughout all eternity, uh, these seals were part of history. And that instead, God's plan for the world for salvation and judgment were wrapped up in those seals. And John cried because no one was worthy to break the seals. But then the Lamb, being Jesus Christ, stood as one yet slain. And he stood, and he was found worthy to break the seals. And then we enter chapter 6, and you remember those four horsemen of the apocalypse, don't you? No, not the thing down on the plaza, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, 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 fountain down there. But they were heralding conquest and war and poverty and scarcity and death. And we told you those four horsemen were not just starting a, a great tribulation, perhaps, of seven years in a row, but all churches of all time have been facing these very things. And in doing so, God was bringing about for them a great glory of his victory. A couple weeks ago, Willie preached in chapter 6 about uh, uh, the cry for vindication. We saw those who had died for their faith and others who had died, and they were crying out for God to, to bring his justice on the earth. And then last week, we saw that sixth seal, which was, I don't have the picture up there. Was it symbolic? Was it literal? And the answer is... Yes. Thank you, Nelson. At the end of the day, now we're in the sixth seal time frame. But people were crying out, fall on us. Who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? And now we're taking a time out to go back. So here's what I want to do. We're going to spend three weeks in chapter seven. Three weeks. Got that? Seven questions-ish, three weeks. Three questions today. You do not need to write these down. We will go through them. Does chapter 7 follow after chapter 6 in chronological order? Who are the 144,000? This is today. What is the seal on the forehead of the servants of God? Next week, who is the great multitude that no one can count? And this is especially one that I think a lot of you are interested in based in this chapter. Is God done with the Jews? Next week. A couple weeks from now, my friend Brian Peters, who is a Presbyterian friend of mine, will be preaching and he's going to be tackling questions of what is the great tribulation and what is our great reward. These are questions that are going to come out of this chapter. But I want to tell you again, our hope here is not to debate this until we are blue in the face. Our goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. Do you see that difference? That's what we're here to do. So number one, what happens here in chapter 7? Does chapter 7 follow chronologically after chapter 6? Please make sure to keep your Bibles open. We will be going as best we can, verse by verse, but we have to frame this some way, hence the questions. Would you look at verse 1 there? Does this follow right after chapter 6? The simple answer is no. Do you see that first word there, first phrase of chapter 7, verse 1? He says, after what? This. He's after this. It's suggesting that chapter 6 precedes chapter 7 in a sequence. It's, it's, it's actually one vision. And it's similar to watching a movie with flashbacks with gaps in the middle. Do, do, do you know what I'm talking about? You see a movie and they kind of go back to their childhood a bit. And then they go back to the future. And sometimes you can't tell if they're here or there or everywhere. In a sense, that's exactly what's happening here. Chapter 7 does not necessarily chronologically follow after chapter 6. Are you confused yet? What I want you to see is that this is very important for us because everything that's going to happen here is a connector, not by chronology, but by literary device. Chapter 6 leaves us with that question. Look back at the end of chapter 6 again. That question is, 
who can stand? And guess what? John is going to answer that question. Who can stand? It's those who are in the Lord who can stand. Stand what? The wrath of God and stand before it. So chapter 6 leaves us with a question, but chapter 7 introduces us to a group of people of 144,000 and a great multitude who will stand. The beginning of chapter 7 is actually probably happening right before the end of chapter 6. What I want you to see is that this is probably happening right before the sixth seal starting in chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 7 is. In chapter 7, the four angels are instructed not to harm three things. You remember what those are in your text? The earth, the sea, and all the environmental people said the trees, amen, right? And there it is. He said, I saw an angel. And he said to hold back the four winds of the earth. The four winds here represent all the corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. The angel is holding back these other angels from doing something against the earth. We believe that what is happening is that chapter 7 will be fulfilled in the sixth seal at the end of chapter 6. And then he says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. This is verse 2, chapter 7. With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of God. The point of all this is, is I want to remind you that Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It is not to be puzzled out. This is apocalyptic literature. This is a book that points to the greater big idea than it does every minute detail that is therein. I know because you shared with me and I feel that struggle. When I was in, I remember going to Minot, North Dakota. Why in the world do you go to Minot, North Dakota? We went on a mission trip in 1997 with First Baptist Church, Plattsburgh, Missouri, Robert Shelton at the helm, leading us up there. And he took a book and looked at me and said, Darren, you, you're going to ministry someday. Here's a book. It was the Left Behind series book by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. I was hooked ever since. I've read every single book of theirs. I understand the theology backwards and forwards. But one thing that book teaches you is that Revelation is a puzzle book. You figure out this piece, you can put this piece over there. Friends, I don't think that's the intention of the book. In fact, what is happening here is that we are seeing a picture of what God is doing the details of which may or may not come to be what our minds think they will be. We will have all our theology about the end times figured out when God calls us home, and that's okay. But the theology that matters right now is is that we get right who Jesus is and what he came to do. So many people have it figured out. They can give you every chart, every end times version, every verse about prophecy, but they could not tell you what Jesus stands for right here, right now, and they're deficient in what they know about God. Friend, do you know, can you describe who Jesus is? If you're not a Christian here today, who is Jesus to you? That may sound funny to you, but really, if you're here today, that may be a big question you have. For us as Christians, we believe that he's the living son of God, that he came down to earth to save us from our sins, and by doing so, he allows us to go to heaven when we trust him and repent of our sins and and go to him, and that may sound funny to you. But if you're not a Christian Really, who is Jesus? That was the million-dollar question that God asked, or Christ asked Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're, you're a prophet. No, but who do you say that I am? And he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I would rather you strike out on everything about the book of Revelation and get everything right about what Jesus has told us specifically about himself in the Bible. And that's okay. We need balance. We need to go through Revelation. But we need to remember it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. So this chapter 6, chapter 7 is probably happening right before the sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12 through the end of the chapter. It's a picture of who will stand. All right, here we go. You ready? That's number one. Number two question. Who are the 144,000? No, I'm not talking about the population of Lee Summit because it's about 150,000. We're not talking about that. We're not saying that this is anything other than what we're about to say. Some have said that this is, if you've had a knock on your door from the Watchtower Society, you have probably heard this from a Jehovah's Witness, that they are part of the 144,000. Well, there's a catch to that. You had to be born before 1918 to be part of the 144,000 of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And there aren't too many walking around that old anymore. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness... Can you be part of this 144,000? Actually, you cannot today. Your best hope is that you'll be in some second-level heaven that's just above hell. That's why they're out knocking on doors. Y'all remember Amway, some of you old-time people? Amway, door-to-door sale, pyramid salespeople. Do you realize how Jehovah's Witnesses get to heaven? They get to heaven by the amount of doors they knock on, the amount of literature they hand out. That's their ticket to heaven in one way, shape, or form. That's why they're so persistent in doing it. That's not who the 144,000 are. Some have said the 144,000 are uh, perhaps, as our Seventh-day Adventist friends would say, those who truly have worshipped on the true Sabbath, which is Saturday. Friends, no. So who are these 144,000? How did they get here? The most popular view is that these 144,000 are ethnic Jews. And I use that word ethnic Jews. They trace their lineage back to the 12 tribes of Israel. That is the most popular perspective. I want to explain to you why I don't think that's necessarily correct. (gasps) We agree that Jesus died and rose again. This is not softening the gospel. Bear with me. I'm going to propose to you something different than perhaps you've heard. How is this come to be? Well, how how is this going to here? I'm going to argue that the 144,000 is not ethnic Jews. It's not Joe's witnesses or anything else. But the 144,000 is a symbolic number a symbolic number. And I'll give you five S's just for the sake of keeping it going. Five reasons why perhaps this is a good interpretation. Who are these 144,000? I think first off, we need to see that they are symbolic. First off, because of the language. Notice that here, there are 12 times 12 apostles times 1,000 representing God's redeemed community. What I mean by that is this cannot possibly be all the Jews that will eventually come to Christ, and some of those Jews are not listed here. In fact, and we'll get through some of this in a minute, these different tribes, some of them are not even listed in the different chronologies that are in the Old Testament. Dan is missing from this. There's others that are missing out of this very thing. You see Joseph instead, we'll get to that in a minute, but the language here is symbolic The language seems to be pointing back to what is going to happen next week when you look down at uh, verses 9 and 10. Read it with me. He says, After this I looked in a great multitude that no one could ever number from every tribe, people, language, and nation stood before the Lord. How is it that this group seems to be Jewish in one view, but everyone else is included here? It doesn't seem to mesh. The second here is the sealed saints. How do we know this is probably symbolic here? The sealed saints. 
Would you hold your spot in Revelation chapter 7 and find the book of Ezekiel? Can you do that for me? Ezekiel chapter 9. It is not going to be on the screen. You're welcome to listen, but I think you'd grow most if you turn with me or swipe your, your device if you have such a thing. And I want to remind you that we got up to chapter 8 in Ezekiel before COVID hit in 2020, and then we took a break from Ezekiel for, for a long, long time. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 says, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and grow over all the abominations that are committed in it. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. My point here is, is that the sealed saints comes from Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 where those who did not follow the wicked ways of Israel had a mark on their head. There were only two categories. You were either for God or against God. You were either for his ways or against his ways. There wasn't a special class because of their ethnicity over here. And when you go to chapter 7 in Revelation, there are not two classes of Christians or two classes of believers. I am grateful that everyone, male, female, Barbian, Scythian, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, we are equal at the cross of Jesus Christ. I hope you see that. Whether you're black, you're yellow, you're mixed race, you're albino, you're whatever, whatever society may call you, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And that's it. And if you believe that those 144,000 are a special group of people, then you really take away all the times, and I'm only giving you one from Ezekiel 9 and many, many other verses that say there's not, a, there's not for God, against God, and then a special group of ethnic people. You either know God or you don't. And if you're here today and you don't know God, you can't play in the middle. You can't be, as my pastor friend here has said many times, you can't be like a cat walking on a fence between two bulldogs. You have to choose your side. Choose this day whom you will serve. Is it Jesus or is it not? So if you want to go back to Revelation chapter 7, these seem to be 144,000 are symbolic because of the language, because of the sealed saints, the, the history. There's no separate category for the Jews. But number three, because of Satan's mark, because of Satan's mark. In chapter 13 of Revelation, Satan seals all his followers with a mark. And I will be honest with you, that's a debated thing. What is the mark of the beast? Friends, I have gotten more messages in this last week because Amazon apparently has a scanner now that you can put your hand up to and it scans whether or not you want to pay for something. Friends, I heard this about the COVID vaccine. I've heard it about cell phones. I've heard it about uh, uh, headpieces. You name it. Look, be careful. Do not make, you know what Satan wants to do to you? He wants you to fear every technology that comes your way to turn you away from focusing on Christ and worrying, have I taken the mark of the beast? If you are a Christian, you are sealed spiritually in Christ. It doesn't matter what technology they throw at you. I hope you see that. Please do not get up in arms. Oh, Amazon's coming out with a scanner and it's going to make me a, 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 a Satan worshiper. If you're in Christ, you worship Christ. That's it. Please do not allow sensualized versions of God and his word to take away what Christ has done for you once for all on the cross. There are Satan's mark, seems to be in Revelation 3. If Satan's followers are sealed, it makes sense that all God's followers would be sealed, not just Jewish ones. 
Do you see that? If there's 144,000 and only the Jewish ones are sealed, and you notice that word, look at chapter 7. How many times did you see the word sealed? Will you count with me? Then I saw the seal of the living God, verse 2, and then verse 3, do not harm until we have sealed the servants. Verse 4, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then all the way down to verse 8, we're sealed. If only the Jews are in view of the 144,000, then we have missed the mark of what it is to be truly in Christ. Be very, very careful. Friends, I, I just cannot say this enough. If you do your theology by the news and the headlines, you are missing out on what Christ has already done for you. If you are more worried about what... Look, go look this up. This is free. There's a thing called the Rapture Index that's online. It's a chart. I've shared this before. It's been a while. Depending on the news of the day, the Rapture Index will tell you if we're getting closer to the coming of Christ. Some days, it's like, nah, Jesus won't come today. There's not enough big headlines. But when Russia does something or America does something or there's some technology that comes up, that meter goes, boop, 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 boop. Jesus must be coming back today. Jesus said, we don't know the day or the hour. All he calls you to do is be faithful where you are, to share the gospel, live for his glory, and love people just as he's loved you. Don't get caught up in sensationalism. Don't read the headlines to do your theology. Read the Bible to do your theology and know the God of the Bible that explains your theology. Number three, Satan's mark is also symbolic. Number four here, how do we know these 144,000 are probably not just ethnic Jews? Well, just as Satan seals his believers, God seals them. But number four, there are servants of God. They are called servants of God. Look at verse three of chapter seven. Notice how he describes these people. In chapter 7, verse 3, they are called servants of God. And this, this phrase, servants of God, is used six times in Revelation. And it always refers to all God's people, not just the Jews. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. He says they're from the tribes of Israel. We'll get there. But he says here that they are servants of God. Look, if you're here today, you're probably not Jewish in one way, shape, or form. But yet, if you know Christ, you're a servant of God, aren't you? Aren't you grateful for that? That God gives you the opportunity to serve him wherever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So he says here, servants of God. How do we know this is probably about all believers? Because he calls them all servants. And then lastly, you'll see who are the 144,000? Probably a symbolic number here. They were selected tribes, selected tribes. The arrangement here, and you can argue this both ways. I've read it. The arrangement of tribes is unique with some omitted. Notice that the first tribe mentioned in verse 5 is the tribe of Judah. Who comes out of the tribe of Judah? Jesus does. Isn't that awesome? The tribe of Judah is not usually listed first among the tribes, but this is not just a chronological ordering of the tribes. Judah is mentioned first, and that's important because if Jesus is the first tribe mentioned here, then we ought to know that everyone who follows after him is able to come to Christ, not just a group of select Jews. Judah is mentioned because Jesus descended from there. You'll notice, as I mentioned a minute ago, the, uh, usually in these orderings of the tribes, there's the tribe of Dan, D-A-N, Dan. And the tribe of Dan was a, a hot mess, guys. They, f- they followed all sorts of idolatry, from Micah the prophet to, to all sorts of things. But they're not listed here. Why would he do that? There are more than a dozen different lists in the, in the book about the tribes of Israel. And I'm going to just read uh, 
some of these to you. But notice also who's also excluded here is the Levi, or not Levi, excuse me, um, uh, who's included is Joseph. You notice Joseph is included in place of Dan. And then you notice also Manasseh. Why is Manasseh included in here? That is the, grand, uh, that is the uh, grandson of Jacob. He's not one of the sons of Israel. So even by the ordering of the tribes, they're all over the place. It seems to suggest this is not just 144,000 Jewish evangelists. This is God's people of all time. Say, Darren, this is really majoring in the minors. You said you're not going to do that. Well, maybe. But I want you to know this is why it's important not to plant your flag in one way in Revelation. Because, friends, John heard the angels, and he heard them talk, and he he knew that these people were here. What you see in these 144,000 are the redeemed from people of all times and all ages everywhere. When you get to heaven someday, there's not going to be a Jewish side and a Gentile side. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That's why God hates racism. That's why God hates bigotry. That's why God hates anything that demoralizes the people that he's created in his image. This list is symbolic, purely a a reflection of all God's people of all times and all places. Well, how are the Jews going to hear about Jesus Christ the same way you heard about Jesus Christ? How does a Jew get saved today? They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and they will be saved. How do you get saved as a Gentile? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There's no difference here. You say, Darren, what is the place of Israel? Oh, I'm going to bring you back next week for that. Hang on. But I want you to know these verses from verses 5 to 8 are verses that I have seen. I have watched YouTube videos this week about preachers who say, if you don't believe it my way, then you must not be a Christian. Please don't hear that from this pulpit. We believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that is Jew, Gentile, Greek, whatever you are. Come to Jesus. He will save you from your sins. Did I muddy the waters probably more than I intended to? Yeah. But I pray that you see Christ. He redeems you wherever you are. And again, if you're here today, can I just remind you that God saved you despite you? He loved you when you did not first love him. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And to use Miss Patsy's favorite word, Patsy, he predestined you. What does that mean? Yes. He chose you. He did. And praise God for that. We are chosen in Christ. Last one is this. We saw, I think, first off, that chapter 7 is best placed, not in chronological order, but right before the sixth seal of chapter 6. We saw the 144,000 Jews probably is a symbolic number. But what is the seal of the forehead of the servants of God? What does that mean? What is the seal on the foreheads of the servants of God? Chapter 7, verse 3. I'll read it again. It says, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants. Sealed the servants. You know, I mentioned before that some of you all are good about winterizing your house because good house maintenance says you're supposed to take the caulk and seal up all the cracks before you do it. And how many of y'all do that every year? Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Not many of you, or you hire someone perhaps, I don't know. But there is a seal that is happening here. And back in those days, a seal meant three things. First, uh, and I, I appreciate Brother Ben reminding us of this the other day as we were talking through this that there were many slaves in the Roman times. And how did you know which slave was whose? Terribly, 
like a cow is today. They were branded, and a seal was put on them so they knew what seal was whose. You remember that book of Philemon, that little small book in the New Testament? Philemon was a, uh, a book about a runaway slave, and he was, met Paul, and Paul shared the gospel with him, and Paul encouraged him to go back to his master. How did he know which master he belonged to, earthly speaking? He's branded. Not saying that's how it should have been, but that's how it was. Three things about an ancient seal. First, there was an authentication. In those days, a seal, a king would use a signet ring. He'd take his ring, and he'd take it, and he'd stamp it down in the hot wax so you knew it was coming from that king and that king alone. In those ancient times, a seal of a document, a seal of authority was indicated by authentication of the one who sent it. Secondly, who are these servants in chapter 7, verse 3? Well, a seal also was security. Like branding with a cattle iron, there was a unique mark put on everybody. So you knew whose they were. You knew which one they were. And then finally, there was also authentication, security. And this last one is very interesting. There was also ownership. The seal was an ownership thing. Say, Darren, I'm lost. Help me. Catch me up. What are you trying to say? Chapter 7, verse 3, sealed the servants. What we are seeing here in chapter 7, verse 3, is that God marks out his people. If you are truly a Christian, you're going to live like, act like, believe like a Christian. If you go to certain parts of the country, perhaps even in our place in Kansas City, and you ask someone, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I go to church. I'm faithful to read my Bible. Well, that's great, but how do you know you're a Christian? The Bible says there are many marks that you'll know you're a Christian, but if you cannot believe that Jesus is the only way to, to God, you know not you're a Christian. These people who had the seal on them were sealed because they believed and trusted and lived out everything that was asked to them by their Savior, Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but the seal is not a physical mark, but a spiritual one. There was a seal, and it, it came in two ways. The seal was first objective. The seal was first objective. In other words, it was God before the foundation of the world calling out their name, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Thank you for reading that, Nelson. Calling them out and saying, you will be mine. I've predestined you. I've called you. Or as the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8 says, and let me read this for you. Romans 8, 28, you know that verse well. God works all things out for the good of those who... Love him who've been called according to his purpose. And we usually stop right there. For those whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Bottom line is this. If you are in Christ, God has objectively said, you are mine. Why did he choose you if he chose you? Because you were better looking, faster, stronger, smarter, skinnier, wiser, more intelligent, had more money in your bank account or no money in your bank account? No. He chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. He didn't pick you because you were better than anybody else. He picked you by his sovereign grace and chose you out. Say, Darren, that sounds very old dead guy-ish. I think it sounds biblical. Because Christians throughout all centuries, no matter the label you throw on them, have always believed that God has chosen people. And the seal of chapter 7, verse 3, is something that he said before eternity, you are mine. 
But there's also a subjective seal that comes. There is a subjective sealing. God objectively calls you through the Holy Spirit. You were declared righteous and protected, but now you feel it in your bones. You live in confidence that you are his. When God has chosen you, you are free now to live out all the promises that he's given you in Jesus. You are free and you are free indeed. You have the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. Let me see if I can get them right. You have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, that fruit singular of the Spirit. All the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, you feel them in your bones even when you sin. That's how you know the seal of chapter 7, verse 3 is on you. And that's how we know these people are not just Jewish evangelists, it's the redeemed for all time. Because when you're in Christ, you have all the goodness of God living within you, most of which you've been declared righteous from all your sin because of what Jesus did for you. Bottom line, when God's servants are described as sealed, it symbolizes that you are authentically his, you belong to him, and you want to live for him. Say, Darren, I don't feel that way about Jesus. Then can I ask you an honest, honest question? Do you really know Jesus? Because if you love, love him, you will want to live for him, even when sin comes in. How do you respond to this? Let me give you three things as we close. Friends, God just doesn't want you to understand this intellectually. He wants you to feel and experience it. And I want you to know these three things as we close out today. First off, there comes a caution. There comes a caution. And I'm going to repeat this day in and day out. And if you're a Christian here today, let this sink in to you. There is a day coming when you will spend, all of us will stand before the Lord. If you're not a Christian here today, that standing before the Lord will be when you give account for your soul as to why you rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, why you blasphemed to bring all scripture in the Holy Spirit. You denied who he was and what he came to do. Christian, I'll remind you again, you will stand before God in judgment, not for your salvation, but for how you live for him. And you won't be cast out of heaven. You're objectively and subjectively his, but how you live this life. So then, Romans 14, 12, all of us must give it, stand and give an account before God. But if you are a Christian, and I get in the midst of this world too, it's the last thing on my mind on most days, if I'm really honest with you, friends, there is a judgment coming. And I'm going to ask you again, how many people in our lives know there's a judgment coming? Now, I'm not talking about, and I've been one of those guys that holds a sign on the side of the street in Westport that says, judgment day is coming. You know, we may make fun of them, but they have something a lot of us forget, that there actually is a day coming. Do your family know? Do your friends know? Do your neighbors know? Do your children know? Do your grandchildren know? If you're a spouse here that doesn't have a Christian husband or wife, does he or she know? Have you shared that message? There is a great day of wrath coming, and who can stand? It's all those who trust in Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, I'm talking to my kids, I'm talking to anyone else here. If you're not a Christian, you're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not sincere enough. You can't give enough money. There's nothing you can do to warrant God to give you forgiveness of sin. 
It is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone, as shown in the scripture alone, to his praise and glory alone. That's it. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there is a great day of wrath coming. And you won't be part of chapter seven. You will be part of the end of chapter six, to put it in that language. Number two, can I give you uh, a little bit here uh, of, of encouragement? If you sincerely pray what John prays at the very end of Revelation, and that prayer is, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, I want you to know the encouragement is that the end won't happen until all the gospel has been reached all the nations. There was a young man, I think it was in late 2018. We have a couple of young guys in our church today, about your guys' age, uh, late teens, early 20s, who he went out to, uh, I just lost it in my head. I didn't write it down yesterday as it came to my mind, reviewing. But he went out southeast of Sri Lanka in, in uh, the Indian Sea, and he tried to reach a people group that is literally sequestered off by the Indian government. No one can go to the island. You may remember this. It was around Thanksgiving time, 2018, 2019. And he went out there, and he tried to throw gifts on the island and try to communicate with them. And they seemed to be very friendly. And his goal was to reach those people with the gospel because none of them, as far as we know, know Jesus Christ. He knows what Matthew 24, 14 says. Jesus said, quote, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that the nations will hear. And when it happens, the end will come. And he got close to that shore. Many of you remember the story. He was speared. He was shot with arrows. He was killed. You say, how foolish was that young man? Perhaps the way he went about it, maybe so. But his heart was in the right place, if you want to use that terminology. His desire was that every people, every tribe, every nation, just as we see in Revelation 7 coming next week, would know Jesus Christ. You say, Darren, I'm not... Do you realize in our neighborhoods back here, church folk, we have 50-plus languages that are spoken, that Wynwood Elementary School, that way, is the most diverse elementary school around right now. The nations are in our backyard. Lord, would you help us to have a heart for evangelism, not just evangelism, but for discipleship. God didn't call us to make converts. He called us to make disciples, but it starts with sharing the gospel. But I want to encourage you, you keep sharing and then the end will come. And we'll talk about all that as we work through Revelation. The last one is this, a caution, encouragement, and a hope. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will stand with the Lord at the end. You will stand. Whether you can physically stand anymore or not, you will stand with the Lord. And you will reign with him. You will judge the world with him and you will praise him for all eternity that he sent his son to die for your soul. What hope that is. You know, in Sunday school, I'm picking on Pastor Brian. I said, we were, I don't even know, we were talking about counting people. And he said, well, and I said, well, it's, it'd be kind of like counting the people at Royal Stadium. You couldn't count them all because there'd be so many people in the stadiums. He basically said, you haven't watched the Royals this year at all, have you? <laughs> There aren't too many people standing and clapping for the royals right now. No, they're not. But the truth is, is that on that day, there will be stadium upon stadium upon stadium full. There will be so many people standing and praising the Lord. And he never has a 100 loss season. He's always perfect in his batting average, his ERA, his home runs. Everything he does is perfect. And on that day when we stand, we will stand with him and cheer with him because he has set the world right 
once and for all. And things of this world will pass away. Christian, have hope. This world is crazy. It's nuts. But Christ says, who will stand? If you're in Christ, this 144 and the great multitude will stand together. What a great God we serve. We join and bow your heads with me as we close out today. God seals his people to shelter them from the coming judgment so they can serve him. Let's pray together. Father, as we close out today on a longer sermon and a more contested chapter, we pray that we can say only a holy God, only a holy God could do such a thing. While we were yet sinners, while we were walking away from you, you gave us the greatest gift. Father, I know for many in this room who are struggling with relationships, with finances, with, with what am I going to do with my life, with a sick family member, with, with all these things. Father, that, 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 that's so true. We know you died for us, but Lord, it doesn't seem to meet that practical need that's right in front of them. Father, whatever we are facing in our church today, whatever struggles others see or don't see that you see, would you just remind us? as we pray about all things and, and, and trust you providentially and sovereignly in all things, that Christ is enough. That no matter what befalls us here, no matter whether you say yes, no, wait, or you change how you answer it, the greatest prayer that we had that we didn't know we needed was that Christ died for us. So Father, with that as our foundation, we step confidently, boldly into the throne room of grace and lay everything at your feet. From that fight we had with our spouse to our kids who aren't saved to the job that doesn't seem to be going anywhere to our health that doesn't seem to be getting better to whatever it is, we lay it at your feet. You can take our greatest need and nail it to a cross and say it's finished. You can take every one of these needs as big as they are and work through them for your glory and our good. So Father, thank you so much. When the end comes, all of us in Christ will be standing. For those in this room, Lord, who don't know you, would you stir them until they are restless to make that decision. I will follow Christ or I reject Christ. And we pray all this today, knowing that we are unworthy, but thanking you that your son is. And we pray in his name, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.